Thank you, Adrian, for joining us today. It's amazing. Uh, my first question for you is um, that on actually on numerous occasions you said that the absolute genius of mm -hmm. the idea of the two-minute silence is that it is a silence. So I was wondering if you could tell us what is it that makes silence such a powerful means of commemoration? Mm. I think in terms of its ritual usage, what's actually so striking about silence is that it is simultaneously collective and individual. So the power of it is in part the um, participation of very large numbers of people in the same act or the same space of solemnity. But at the same time, nobody is actually saying to anyone, this is what has to happen inside your own head. Um, in other words, you can impose an individual meaning on an act which has a collective presence. And I think this is um, unusual and as I, as I mentioned, I, I mentioned this as quite brilliant because this is what I think catches people's imagination about it as a particular form. And one of the reasons why it's so um, extraordinary in Britain in 1919, um, but then um, has carried on since. I think um, one could also point out, and I think I will be talking further about this today, um, that the initial impact might be rather different from the impact of repetition. And I think that there are differences there. Uh, but nevertheless, I think it is this combination of the highly individualistic, the highly private, and the deeply public. And I think that very combination is actually the power of it. Silence. Is it more than the absence of noise? Um, what makes silence into commemorative silence? I think several different things can. I think ultimately seriousness and solemnity. I mean, simply going silent because you can't think of anything or you can't uh, you have nothing to say is rather different than an absolutely deliberate act where people understand that this is being done for a deep purpose. And I think that's the central difference between simply a, you know, a kind of quiet pause um, and a silence, if you like, capitalised. When thinking about reconciliation and peace building, do you think silence has more potential than merely being an element of commemorative practices? Certainly the potential is there. Uh, but again, it can be rather complicated. Um, and this is something, again, I sort of intend to talk about in my little stint this morning. Um, Silence is not simply, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a phrase in, in English, you know, silence indicates content or consent. Um, it's not necessarily always that. Um, I think silence can also be accusatory. Um, and that in turn can actually serve powerful purposes. Um, in a sense, silence against silence. And that's also something that I would like to explore further. Um, now, in terms of reconciliation, yes, it can, um, but in complicated ways, partly to do with the fact that a shared silence doesn't necessarily demonstrate that the content of that silence is the same for everyone. 
So in, on some levels, of course, it can paper over differences of thinking, that you're sharing the science together, and that's the important thing, and that, that avoids the difficult questions. But it's also possible, of course, that what people are internally placing into that silence might, in fact, be deeply contradictory. And by dealing with it through silence, you're, you're avoiding the discussion. So I think it's, it, it is, as, as, as in so many aspects of the discussion of science, it's strangely Janus-faced. I think it can be useful in conciliatory terms. Uh, it can be you know, a, a, um, an alternative to angry words, mm-hmm. but it can also be an evasion. And I think for it to work effectively in terms of reconciliation, um, I think there has to be a lot of thoughts preceding what's going on. And probably, again, ironically, a lot of noise around the silence, a lot of discussion around the silence. Well, in your book, The Silence of, of Memory, you described how British people commemorate the national trauma mm-hmm. ensured in their First World War. Thinking this into consi- taking this into consideration, what role would you attribute to silence in uh, commemorative practices, and why would... Uh, Silence have this particle role. Yeah, one thing I should probably say um, is I wrote, um, and and the book is very much an adaptation of my of my doctoral thesis. I wrote this in 1994. Uh, I would even at the time I think I was somewhat cautious about this. I would now be very cautious about a a term like national trauma in the case of Britain in the First World War. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a trauma for individuals and families. I'm not sure that national is actually particularly meaningful in in, in the bluntest sense of of, of a nation I don't think can be traumatised, it's a rarefication. And what I became on further reflection very aware of is that, again, within this process of commemorative silence, there are people who are using this silence very much to think about the deeply personal. Um, but there are other people who are observing the silence um, as a kind of secondary process of mourning. In other words, that they are showing solidarity with the bereaved, with the grief-stricken, rather than necessarily being deeply grief-stricken themselves. And in in some ways, of course, the silence operates. And this is where I think commemorative silence can actually take on a slightly more coercive dimension of a forced tribute from people to other people's families. Now, sometimes that can be an issue of deep respect, but sometimes it can be something that can almost be resented as, as being as being pushed on, on people. So I think it's 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 important in a sense to not try to create um, an individual psychoanalysis for a diverse population. Um, the motivations that people have for observing silence are not all the same. Uh, and I think it's very important actually to emphasize that. So the collective dimension of it is a kind of construction rather than simply welling up from individual responses. Um, Focusing on the gradual development of Armistice Day ceremonies, how has this particular public ritual changed over the years? Yeah, I I think, again, the the, the sort of striking thing about this 
uh, is the degree to which the actual history of this is not well understood in the sense that it isn't in fact a gradual development it's it's actually a, a very um ruptured development in the the commemorative silence of the 1920s and 1930s which is what i write about in the book um is distinctly of that period and then there is a real um disjuncture with the second world war partly because the public ceremonials are largely, not entirely in, in, in every area, but mostly um, paused while the war is going on. And then the two-minute silence does not resume in its pre-war form in 1946. And there is a movement away from uh, the November the 11th silence, which occurs on uh, Armistice Day every year on November the 11th, to being a two-minute silence which is generally observed on Remembrance Sunday, which is the nearest Sunday to November the 11th. And observing a, a public silence on a Sunday and observing it on a weekday are two very different things. And so it's only actually in 1994 that we see the revival of the two-minute silence in Britain in the way that it was observed on November the 11th in the interwar period, and for very specific reasons at that point. Uh, now, of course, what we now have, 24 years on, is the loss of any awareness that there is a disjuncture. So people believe that we have been observing the two-minute silence continually since 1919, and that's simply not true. <laughs> um, and some of us are old enough to remember that that's not true. Uh, but, but certainly the public version of it elides that whole post-Second World War period when this was observed very differently. Um, and look straight back over that to how this was done in the interwar. So I think that's one of the sort of crucial things to realise, that this is not simply a, you know, a smooth evolution over 100 years. This is actually a very discontinuous story in Britain mm. um, and has its own history. It's not just you know, a, an evolution. Um, in your view... Is the Armistice Day an androcentric public ritual, silencing perhaps the woman's experience of war? Um, I think when I uh, was asked this on, on the email, my response was absolutely no. Um, I, I will reflect on this slightly further. Um, it's certainly the case that the major agents in the creation of the two-minute silence are all men. Um, and uh, the way that it's um, uh, introduced into Britain is, is, is largely through um, uh, male discussions. And I think m almost everyone, although I mean, there's a lot of misattributions for the origins of the Senate silence as well, I think even the people who have misattributed mis as, as having come up with the idea of all men as well. Um, that said, it wouldn't, I think, have succeeded and survived as a commemorative ritual without the massive participation and deep conviction in participation of, of women. Um, and women are always, from the very start, um, su subject and object in the silence, and, and very importantly. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it is perceived in the interwar period very often specifically as something for widows, for bereaved mothers. 
Um, and indeed, most of the discourse about mourning in that country is, is, is absolutely focused on this is something for um, the women who have lost men. Um, it seemed more about them often than about the men themselves. Um, now, uh, that's not to say that all women um, approve of or support the two-minute silence, but by and large, they are there and centrally there. In terms of the public performance of silence, um, this is probably in the interwar period um, a predominantly male affair, um, in that more men are simply out in public at the moment that the silence occurs. Uh, whereas um, some women, although again we shouldn't, shouldn't overrate the degree to which women are confined to the household during the 1920s and 30s, uh, but some women will be observing it on their own um, in the house, often by the 1930s listening to the radio. Um, but there is a lot of evidence that they absolutely do observe it um, and that they feel connected to the public ceremony. So, yeah, I mean, I don't see myself um, any particular evidence to see this as androcentric. And in part that's because I don't think it is simply about the dead. It is also, and perhaps in some cases even more, about the bereaved who are usually uh, characterised in the classic form of, of, of particularly as the grieving mother. Um, it's rather interesting, again, I'm speaking about this in a moment, um, that... Uh, Women in recent years, I think, have also been at the forefront of utilising um, silence in, in commemorative form. Um, and so it certainly seems to be something that women are actually very good at thinking about and, and, and utilising um, as, a, as a mechanism. So, Thank you very much. Uh,